Joey called in her marker just short of a year later. During the interim, she had continued her work with her four uncles. Her proposal was accepted, but had to be put on the back burner. The government had dictated that a more urgent problem involving an infectious disease would take precedent. This caused Joey to consult with technicians whose job it was to test proposals under laboratory conditions that grew out of research done by Joey's team. In other words, Joey and her uncles generated ideas for treatments and cures, and the lab crew devised experiments to test implementation. Joey acted as a liaison between the two teams. She enjoyed the opportunities to interact with people closer to her own age in different surroundings than her new duties afforded. She and Susie, one of the lab techs, sometimes ran together on the base, and they even tried to meet once a week to blow off steam over beers in the local pub, often along with Paul and Lucy, the other two techs. One night in particular in mid-November, Susie brought up the subject of the upcoming Christmas party which was held in the base country club. Joey had attended the previous year. Attended isn't really the right word. Put in an appearance would be more accurate. She went stag as did Uncle Maurice, while her other uncles, Ming, Ben, and Andrew, escorted their wives. Paul and Lucy went as a couple. Susie's boyfriend was part of the base's security detail. He was one of only a few soldiers present. There existed a tacit understanding with the on-base military contingent that this occasion was mostly for non-military personnel who worked on the base. The uniformed population held its own more raucous gathering at the Pub Hub, a popular base watering hole. The party which Joey had attended Stag started out a pleasant diversion. The buffet was excellent, the liquor flowed, a band played, and people danced. Joey danced with each uncle. Still, Joey's solo status had made her feel increasingly conspicuous as the evening wore on, so she left quite early and headed back to her on-base apartment. Joey told Susie that, in regard to the upcoming party, she wouldn't attend again without an escort. Susie immediately offered to have her MP boyfriend fix Joey up. Joey declined Susie's offer. What happened next grew out of the fact that Joey was one beer over her usual limit, and that Susie could sometimes be annoying about lording it over Joey when the opportunity arose. Joey had already been on the receiving end of remarks from Susie that had convinced Joey over time that Susie was actually rather jealous of Joey's elevated status as compared to her own. Technically, Joey was Susie's superior, although Joey had always treated her like an equal. Nevertheless, on occasions when Susie had a question in the lab about some request from Joey that Susie was required to implement, that acted as a constant reminder to Susie that her status was clearly the lesser. And on occasions like that, Susie sometimes loosed the green-eyed dragon. This was one of those occasions. Susie casually remarked that Joey should make a greater effort to attract male company, lest she turn into an old-maid lab rat before her time. That hit a nerve with Joey. Her hackles went up. She commented that the reason she was unescorted the last time was that her boyfriend was filming a movie on the West Coast. Joey could tell from the look on Susie's face that she'd counterpunched effectively. Naturally, Susie asked who Joey was talking about. When Joey told her, Susie was left speechless. That was when the devil had his moment with Joey, who casually announced that Johnny Domino had promised to be her escort for this year's Christmas party. If you've ever instantly regretted something you've said, you'll know exactly how Joey felt at that moment. However, 
Putting Susie on the defensive made Joey feel that her seemingly casual remark was worth it. Naturally, Susie fired a battery of questions, and also naturally, Joey was more than happy to embellish. In for a penny, she thought. When Joey woke the next morning, somewhat hungover, it was to acknowledge that she'd led Susie to believe that she and Johnny Domino were much more than casual friends. She also had to acknowledge that Susie had dared her to prove it. And that she, Joey, had accepted the dare. Christmas parties were the last things on John's mind heading into this same holiday season. Ben had been pushing the Liberty Suits to put together a European tour. Three performances in each of two different locations in England, France, and Germany. Along with print and radio interviews and guest shots on network television programs. The entourage was to leave two days after Thanksgiving and was scheduled to return on Thursday, December 21st. Neither John nor the other solo artists and groups were enthusiastic about the timing. They'd all have to do Christmas shopping before Thanksgiving. But the opportunity to see how Europeans celebrated Christmas appealed, along with the fact that few of them had ever been abroad. The Liberty Suits bought into Brad's idea when it had first been floated back in July. Their strategy was to time the European release of the troupe's singles and albums for the tour, thereby guaranteeing brisk sales as Christmas gifts. On the personal front... Johnny and Bevy the Brit were ancient history. John had moved on, closely followed by his fans and by the media, which fed their appetite for more Johnny Domino mania. That was fueled by an advertising campaign for another male fragrance company, which Johnny was paid handsomely to endorse. The fragrance, sold as both aftershave and cologne, was called Afterglow, a not-too-subtle reference. Its black-and-white print advertising featured models in diaphanous negligees reclining on beds which showed rumpled sheets and two pillows, one vacant but with the clear impression of the recent occupant's head. Johnny was featured in only one print ad, but it was another Lulu. The black-and-white photo was taken by a fashion photographer stationed on a second-floor balcony of a Las Vegas hotel where John was playing at the time. John was lying alone on a pool chaise, resting after rehearsal and before dinner. His eyes were closed. He wore only a brief white swimsuit. The suit was just tight enough to be slightly revealing. The slanted rays of the late afternoon sun, through a trick of light, created elongated shadows, and as it happened, created the impression that one of John's assets was rather impressively elongated as well. It was hard to tell, however, where reality ended and the impression of reality began. In any case, the print ad was a sensation. After Glow's manufacturer received so many requests for copies of the ad that they rushed a poster-sized version of the ad into print and distribution. It quickly became the male equivalent of that Raquel Welch 1 million BC poster, which started out as a promotional photo for a very forgettable movie. If Raquel Welch's poster was required wall decor in teenage boys' rooms, Johnny Domino's poster was de rigueur for teenage girls' rooms. There was a famous ad campaign at the time for Memorex audio tape, which touted the fidelity of sound recordings by asking, is it real or is it Memorex? It wasn't long before this question was frequently asked of John's image on the poster. Young women whom Johnny had dated were quick to enhance their own reputations by enhancing his. Meanwhile, Afterglow sold by the gallon. The truth is, 
While he kept company with a string of attractive singers and movie stars, he never stuck with anyone for long. Most recently, he'd been keeping company with a red-headed beauty named Scarlet Rhymes, or, to his fans, Scarlet the Starlet. She was one of a growing number of beautiful young women in the entertainment industry whose greatest talent seemed to be in the field of self-promotion. She couldn't sing, and her roles in movies were decidedly as B-characters. But she knew how to make herself look beautiful and desirable, and for fan mags, that was often enough. Critics described her as vapid. John had released two singles in the past year, both off his latest album, Second to None. The first single was the album's title song, which Tommy had written, and the second single, All Over Again, opened the album's B-side. Both singles placed in Billboard's top five for several weeks, but the fact that they were both taken from the same album made the album Billboard's number one for six weeks, a first for Johnny Domino. As proud as he was of that musical accomplishment, however, it paled in his mind when compared to the visibility he'd brought to children's cancer centers in hospitals across the country. When he appeared at this year's Grammys back in February, he was surprised to be greeted on stage by Emily, this time without Martha. And the ovation was thunderous. She presented him with the ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, annual humanitarian award, which touched him deeply. John and Joey saw each other every time he came home, in other words, about every six weeks. Their meetings were never treated as dates by either. Instead, they were opportunities for two friends to have dinner, sometimes see a movie, hang out together for a few hours, and generally catch up. No earthquakes, <laughs> no tidal waves. Just two friends from childhood who had seen each other's warts, enjoying their time with each other. Nothing else, nothing more. That is, until John's last visit home before his holiday European tour. It was Thanksgiving night. Joanne had spent it with her parents. John had gone to Ruth's. John had invited Joey over to his place for leftovers, but neither was hungry, so they snacked on popcorn and pizza rolls and talked. Much of the discussion centered on John's upcoming holiday tour. Joey was curious about whether John would celebrate Christmas this year, or just use his late return as an excuse to return to his previous Scrooge mode. He surprised her by saying that he would like to participate as long as it stayed low-key. She asked him if he wanted her to buy a tree for him before his return. He said that he would very much appreciate it if she did, and that he also hoped that she would help him set it up and decorate it as she had last year. She agreed as long as he would concede to two light strings and a few, just a few additional ornaments. He conceded. She then saw her opportunity and took it. I have a favor I'd like to ask. What kind of favor? It's about the annual Christmas party at the base. I was wondering if you would be my date. Your date? Yeah, my date, my escort, just for this one night. I went stag last year, and I stood out like a sore thumb. I want to go, but I just don't want to go alone. I thought I could ask you. It's just for the research and lab personnel, so there won't be many people. Isn't there anybody else you could ask? 
When is it? The day after you get back, Friday. Joey, I hate those things. I knew you'd say that, but you owe me Domain or Domino or Mr. Scarlet Rhymes in the parlor with a meat cleaver or whatever you're calling yourself these days. You said that you didn't like standing out like a sore thumb last time, so now you want me to stand out instead? You wouldn't. There'll only be a few young people. Most of the people there are older, like my uncles. They won't know the difference between Johnny Domino and Vic Damone. It's just for a couple of hours. I'll help you do Christmas shopping. I'm planning to pick up a few things while I'm traveling and bring them home with me. Oh. Yeah, okay. But just this once. All bets are paid, right? Well... What do you mean, well... Well, what? There's just one more little thing. You see, there's this girl, a lab tech I work with. Her name is Susie, and... Joanne then told John the whole story. About Susie's jealousy. About how angry Susie's old maid remark had made her. About the night in the pub where she, Joey, had had one too many. And about how the words had just come tumbling out of her mouth before she could stop herself from saying them. John listened in silence. That really complicates things for me. See, I've been thinking of asking someone to partner up with me, and I was planning to do it when the tour ended for Christmas-like. Oh. Oh, wow. You mean you're getting engaged? Hardly. I was thinking more like going steady, but that's not right either. Besides, that sounds so corny, so 50s, you know? So, more like engaged to become engaged? No, that's too strong. So... Maybe you mean more like exclusive, exclusive to each other. Yeah, that's better. Exclusive. Yeah, like that. If she'll even go for it. <laughs> Are you kidding? Every teenager in America will hate her. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suppose you're willing to divulge... What? Her identity, stupid. Who is it? And you'd better not say Bevy if you ever want me to speak to you again. I don't want to say anything else until I know she'll accept. Otherwise, I'll just end up feeling embarrassed. And looking embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, it's bound to get out. That too. Meanwhile, your fans will celebrate a second Christmas if she says no. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Is it Scarlet the Starlet? <sighs> okay, okay, I get it. I'll stop. Please. Done. So, how's this? The morning after the party, I call everybody there and explain that I was just pranking Susie, that it was all a joke. I was planning to call her anyway, so I'll make a few more calls. Not a big deal. Yeah, but if somebody takes a picture... Private cameras aren't allowed on base. They're too great a security risk. But what if somebody sneaks one in? Can't happen. You're practically stripped naked before you're even allowed to enter. Really? There are signs posted all around the perimeter of the base that say no trespassing, lethal force authorized. Believe it. But even without photos, somebody could still talk to the press. So? Where's the proof? I'll deny it. You'll deny it. Where's the evidence? It was just a joke, a prank. Besides, what happens on the base stays on the base, John. Trust me on this one. So... I have to pretend like we're a couple. Hold my hand and tell me that I look nice. 
That's it. You can manage that for a couple of hours. I'm not asking that much. Then you can go back to treating me like a tomboy again. I don't treat you like a tomboy. <laughs> okay. I'll do it. Now, are there any other surprises, or is that it? Because if there are... No other surprises. You promise? I promise. And that was how it was left. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm Coming Home Again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.